Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Well, Jim, anybody who's listened much to our show knows that we're both journalists and we're doing the next couple of episodes of How Do We Fix It on some of the changes in the news business. And these changes go back pretty long ways, I think, for both for us as journalists and for consumers of news. So we're going to focus today on what's been going on in local news over the past couple of decades. Rescuing and rebuilding local news with Anna Brookman. The loss of local journalism really started happening at the advent of the internet. The internet disrupted the local journalism model. By almost every metric by which you would measure a healthy community or a healthy democracy, it trends the wrong direction when local news leaves. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Think about your news reading, viewing, and listening habits over the last couple of decades. Chances are they've changed dramatically. In fact, the more you think about it, the more you'll realize that almost nothing's the same. Yeah, much of our information now is online, whereas 20, certainly 30 years ago, virtually all of it was in print or broadcast. And now we have podcasts as well. By the way, it was a real joy last week during a train ride to Washington when I actually read two print newspapers. That old-fashioned way of just leafing through the news is very different from what most of us do now. Yeah, I try to still keep some print media in my my mix, partly because it's just a different experience. It's a more tactile. You can sort of sink into it a little bit more. A lot of the newer forms are also different in content. They're more focused on opinion. There's less emphasis on reporting, whereas both on broadcast and in in formats like like Substack, a lot of what we see takes the form of advocacy or opinion journalism. Anna Brugman is our guest today. She's director of policy at the nonprofit group Rebuild Local News, which works to support local newsroom funding. You spoke with Anna a few days ago. Anna Brugman, welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you for having me. Your website says that local news has collapsed. That's a pretty dramatic statement. Tell us more. Um, Well, it's a pretty dramatic phenomenon within the local journalism industry. In the last 20 years, more than 2,000 newspapers have closed in the United States. There's been a 57% loss of newspaper newsroom employees, even as the population has grown. So that's almost 60% fewer local journalists covering things like city councils, like local elections, um, like what's happening in schools, like high school football games, all of the information that communities find valuable and help communities learn about themselves um, and solve their own problems. 
those are the results. What are the causes of this collapse? So it depends who you ask. The loss of local journalism really started happening at the advent of the internet. The internet disrupted the local journalism model, the journalism model broadly, but particularly the local journalism model in a way that technology always does. The telegram disrupted the journalism model. Radio disrupted the journalism model. But what was particularly um, acute with the disruption of internet is that it kind of hoovered all of those advertisements that used to go into local news. And this starts with Craigslist, really. I was going to ask you about Craigslist because... Most newspapers were fat with classified ads until around 2000. And then the classified advertising went online and uh, newspapers became a lot thinner. And and I guess their revenue was much smaller as a result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, classified ads were really kind of where you started to see this happening. Craig Newmark, the uh, inventor of Craigslist, is now a funder of local journalism. So we should <laughs> make sure we state that. But yeah, classified ads was really where you started to see this. And that uh, expanded into programmatic advertising. And so when you're logging on to a web page or even reading a local journalism article, an advertising box, that advertising, there's like a rapid um, auction happening behind the scenes and bidders are bidding to place advertising in that place. That's programmatic advertising. And there's a duopoly, which is a monopoly of two people in the programmatic digital advertising space. And that's that's mostly Google. <laughs> um, and so that digital advertising and the uh, the proliferation of internet platforms massively disrupted the the journalism business model and there were many slow to adapt to those changes which also exacerbated the way that it affected the the local journalism field so since around 2000 local newspaper advertising fell off dramatically uh, down around 80% 80% in the last 20 years, and subscriptions now account for a larger revenue percentage than advertising. And that's remarkable because for much of the epoch of commercial journalism in the United States, which is roughly about 100 years, advertising has underwritten or subsidized the production of journalism. Journalism itself does not uh, sell, <laughs> typically. It's not a huge money-making endeavor. What sells is people who are reading the journalism and the audience that attracts. And then you can sell that audience to advertisers who take out advertisements that subsidizes the cost of creating that journalism. But that model doesn't work anymore. You mentioned this in your first answer, but what's the cost of this collapse to towns, cities, and counties across the country? Mm -hmm. Well, by almost every metric by which you would measure a healthy community or a healthy democracy, it trends the wrong direction when local news leaves. And so you have, when when local news leaves a community, fewer people vote. Incumbents are more likely to win elections. Fewer people run for election. Um, people are less likely to know the name of their representative. People are less likely to Google the mayor. Just all sorts of civic uh, behaviors declines. In addition to that, um, the cost of borrowing usually increases in a community because the people who rate bonds, when they see there's no local watchdog, they don't trust the investment as much. Taxes increase. Government waste increases. 
Walk us through just one of those. For instance, borrowing costs increasing. Is that because there isn't a reporter covering City Hall who points out that perhaps the city council has picked the more expensive bidder because the, the, the that more expensive bidder is a good friend of of members of the city council. Yeah, it's kind of that dynamic. And so the way that bonds get rated, there is a third party that rates a bond. Um, and when that third party sees that there's no one who's going to watch this government, this uh, this person who's levying the bond, then they don't trust it as much. And so it gets a lower rating, um, which makes it more expensive for communities to fund projects uh, that better the community. How has the news we consume changed? Broadly, what we know is that as newspapers have consolidated, they often report on less local news. Um, And so when major chains, for example, buy your local newspaper, you'll probably see more regional news, maybe even more national news, but less local news that is truly local. Um, And when that happens, it kind of affects the entire ecosystem because newspapers provide the bedrock original reporting that things like commercial radio and commercial television then depend on. And more national news tends to be more polarizing because national news tends to be reported on through a two-party lens where local issues don't tend to be quite as partisan. and so when news is more local, it tends to be less polarizing. A few moments ago, you mentioned commercial radio. I spent most of my career in broadcasting in commercial radio. And 50 years ago, when I was a kid, radio stations had news programming. Uh, not now, because of changes in the law and other trends. Most commercial stations no longer have any reporters on their staff. Is that part of the problem? Um, I think it relates to it. And and that's a a regulatory, as you said, a regulatory change that has happened in the last 25 years. Um, I grew up on talk radio. My dad is a huge talk radio fan so much as I used to walk into gas stations and hear my father on the local talk radio stations. (laughs) Um, And so I very much grew up on kind of the last of that kind of radio that had not just local talk and opinion, but local reporting as well. And that in commercial radio stations has has really, really declined. It's a lot cheaper to do things like like a just a talk show or opinion show, it is much more expensive to do reporting. What are news deserts? That is an area or a county typically without a local newspaper. And those are growing in the United States. To what extent are they growing? Are there a lot of places that are news deserts that just simply don't have any functioning local newspaper? Um, yes. <laughs> more, as I said, more than 2,000 newspapers have closed in the United States since about 2004. Um, so we're looking at like a 20-year decline. About 100 closed in the first year of the pandemic alone. Um, we're seeing on average two close a week. And the last week, just as far as my awareness, one closed in North Texas, another closed in Southern West Virginia. And so that leaves about 200 news deserts in the U.S., about 1,800 communities without local or local newspaper and it's not just newspapers closing it's also newspapers that are a shell 
of what they once were, where there are far fewer local reporters. Right. So even that number, that 2,000 newspapers that have closed, doesn't quite capture the loss. Um, I should say at this point also that there are lots of organizations that are working to fill these gaps. The problem is that the decline is so precipitous that the innovators are not quite making up as much ground as the decline. I'm going to ask you about solutions in just a moment, but let me let me share with you one example that to me is is pretty dramatic. In the state where I live, Connecticut, Republican Governor John Rowland was forced to resign and went to prison and following a series of corruption and fraud scandals that began with a news investigation 20 years ago by the Hartford Current, which was a very strong and widely read newspaper then, just after 2000, but now is struggling. So is that an example of where corruption was uncovered then, but may not be now? Yeah, and it's... Hard to prove a negative, so we don't know what we don't know. We don't know yeah. what we're not covering yeah. because we're not covering it. But there have been several things over the past five years that kind of show us what happens when local news as a whole begins to deteriorate. Because how the system used to work is you used to kind of have like links in a chain of you'd have these smaller weekly papers that were covering local issues, and they might publish an item kind of piques the interest of maybe a, a, a regional reporter that picks it up and does a little bit, bit of digging, publishes something. It winds up in a Metro Daily, that Metro Daily starts covering it. And then maybe a legislature or somebody within the a government apparatus notices it and launches an investigation. And then there's accountability, right? But you have to have all of those pieces. Information's not moving to these these larger news publications, which means we're probably not getting <laughs> as much reporting on corruption as we would have if that system was working um, as well as it used to. Anna Brugman is our guest. This is the first of two episodes we're doing on some of the changes in the news media, and maybe offering a few solutions as well. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. You may have noticed our newsletter is being published more frequently lately. We'd like to share with you more about what we do and the thinking behind how do we fix it. And often there are links to our recent articles. And Jim, you write a lot more well-researched pieces <laughs> than I do. I'm behind schedule handing in a piece right now. Well, sign up for our newsletter. Listen to all 383 episodes of How Do We Fix It? And our website, Jim, is howdowefixit.me. Now, back to the interview you did, Richard. Anna, this interview has been a bit of a bummer so far. I know. <laughs> but the organization that you work for has a hopeful name, which is Rebuild Local News. So what's the premise of Rebuild Local News? The premise of Rebuild Local News is that we want a better local news system than we had before. The idea is not to stuff local news back in the bottle. We're talking about a, a better, more inclusive, more robust local news system than the one we had before. So what are a few examples of how this could be done? 
So Rebuild Local News works in the area of public policy. And so I'm going to talk a lot about public policy, but that's by no means to undermine other solutions in the space, like business model innovation, which is really important. And lots of commercial newspapers are undertaking it, like nonprofit news, which is one of the most rapidly expanding areas in the field of local journalism. I think it's three in five nonprofits that exist today didn't exist (laughs) five years ago, which is pretty incredible. It's not to undermine public broadcasting, but I work in public policy, which we think is a really important piece of this puzzle to help sustain other solutions within the local journalism field. Public policy and government initiatives to boost local journalism are really nothing new. The United States has a long history of public policy that supports journalism. The postal subsidy of 1792 is my boss, Steve Waldman's favorite example. Um, It gave a discounted rate to periodicals in the early United States to send their periodicals. And so it provided that kind of foundational policy that helped local journalism and journalism broadly spread throughout our early country. Public broadcasting, another good example of public policy. Even something as simple as a newspaper box on your corner, that's kind of an example of public policy because somebody probably went to a city council and said, hey, we want to put a newspaper box here to help people access our newspaper. They probably don't pay rent on that box, but some government body probably approved it. And so that's also an example of how public policy supports the access of critical uh, information to our democracy in local communities. And your group... Rebuild Local News is also working with trade groups, including Black and Hispanic news outlets, newspaper associations, local independent online news publishers, and and more. They're all supporting local and state proposals aimed at helping local journalism. Some of those policies look like tax credits. There's something called the payroll tax credit for local journalism, which would provide Uh, news publishers um, and news outlets a payroll tax credit uh, for every journalist they employ. Um, There's something called the advertising tax credit, which would incentivize local advertising, which provides kind of the bedrock foundation for many local news outlets. There's an approach that was um, originally passed in New York City that allocated a portion of government advertising to community news outlets. Every government has an advertising budget. They weren't spending that advertising budget in local news outlets. And this mandated that a proportion of it be spent in local news outlets. So instead of spending the tax dollars on uh, national publications or nationally owned media, it goes to local media, right? Right. Right, exactly. And this approach has also been introduced in the state of Connecticut. Um, And so we're really invested in seeing how that policy can be adapted at the state level, not just the city level. What role do nonprofits play now? They're growing, aren't they? They are growing. They're growing quite quickly. They are proportionally the fastest growing area in our field. And the way that many nonprofits function is some news outlets can pay a subscription to republish that information, or some outlets even offer it for free with attribution uh, to other news outlets in the state. Um, But they are important and they are providing a critical service. 
What about for-profit businesses? Are, are they also involved in trying to uh, rebuild local news? Oh, of course. <laughs> um, and there's far more for-profit news outlets than there are nonprofit news outlets. Um, and what for-profit news outlets are now having to do is adapt their business model because traditionally they've relied on advertising. And so now they're adapting their business model to rely on things like memberships and philanthropy and local events. Um, I was just talking to somebody who works with local news outlets in Kansas, and there's a little group of newspapers that's transitioning from a commercial business model to a membership model. And I think that's really innovative and really an interesting way of transitioning from those two models. Um, again, philanthropy has become very important to some commercial news outlets of expanding their revenue uh, streams to not be so dependent on advertising. So commercial news outlets are absolutely a part of this. And we see commercial news outlets re reorienting their business model towards service at quite a high quite a high degree. With that hopeful note, Anna Brugman, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Anna Brugman. Next, our recommendation. Jim, it's your turn. And I understand it's a podcast, a rival podcast to ours. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. I've been really listening to a lot of podcasts lately. In fact, you know, we unplugged our TV, so I don't listen to any broadcast news. I don't listen to CNN, MSNBC, Fox, any of that anymore. And I take that time instead. If I'm cooking or cleaning the house or going for a walk, I just queue up one of the about well, maybe eight or ten podcasts that I listen to regularly. My latest favorite, or among several, is The Reeducation with Eli Lake. And Eli is a writer for Commentary Magazine, where I also write a column, and numerous other outlets. Really, really smart guy who represents uh, a kind of thoughtful, questioning, center-right perspective on the world. So, for example, if you run a contrarian look at things that you thought you knew all about and you thought the opinions were settled, check out his cover story in the current commentary magazine about the case for the Iraq War. He's not saying it was the right decision or that it was fully successful, but he, he pulls together a, a whole range of really thoughtful ideas about why we went into Iraq and why Iraq today is not a great place to be, but way better than it was before the war. You you get thrown out of polite society for saying this kind of thing half the time. And that's exactly what I like. Eli is center-right, and, and that's probably where you are. My politics are more center-left, but because I do spend a lot of time reading the New York Times and reading The Economist and, and reading The Washington Post, I often find it really refreshing to get surprising opinions from center-right sources. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I still read Mother Jones, articles in Mother Jones, not infrequently. I don't agree with them usually, but they're well-reported and you know, they they offer ideas that I need to grapple with. And just in case you didn't know it, Mother Jones is kind of left. Yeah, that's for sure.
Anna Brugman of Rebuild Local News, a little bit unusual for us as a guest because she is an advocate. She's speaking on behalf of a nonprofit group, but I thought that uh, her views, her information were valuable as we consider uh, changes in journalism. What were your impressions, Jim? It's great that the organization exists, and I thought Anna's perspective was really smart. We need people really puzzling over these problems. But Jim, you have reservations about one or two of Anna's proposed solutions. Being more conservative means always being a little paranoid about unintended consequences. And so when I hear about things like tax breaks for advertising for local journalistic outlets, what does it mean if a highly partisan outlet winds up supporting one of these kind of pink slime news sites that look like local news, but they really don't involve a lot of really local people. And they're really set up to uh, to rope people into thinking they're seeing a local news site and then feeding them a lot of really partisan, you know, in many cases, far-right propaganda. So how do you guard against that? Do you now, now you need an agency to make sure that it's a real news site and it's not a bogus news site. And anytime the government is trying to encourage people to give money to a certain kind of business, there is an opportunity for some sort of corruption or some somebody to game the system. So you don't like the proposed law that would mandate support for journalism, for local journalism, and and require government agencies to spend a certain percentage of their advertising dollars on these local news sites, as opposed to nationally owned media? I do and I don't. I mean, I you know, I feel like I wish, yeah, I'd love it if they would do that in an even-handed way. I wouldn't love it if they use it to reward their journalistic friends. And, you know, a lot of journalism these days, as, as um, Anna pointed out, is it's uh, and as we'll hear more in the next episode we do on journalism, it's not all done by the traditional independent, you know, journalistic advertising supported or outlets. Often it's done by groups that are advocates of, of some position to some degree. That's fine with me, but I, but it. Maybe it's not so fine if we're asking for government funding. And how do we make sure that you know that these government agencies aren't just funding the outlets that they like and not the ones they don't like? I don't. I might be being a little paranoid here, but I, I do think these things have to be really thought through. Even though the intention is great, and and certainly you know anything we can do to boost the finances of of, of local news without getting involved in the government, putting its thumb on the scale of what gets published, I think that's great. I, I'm really struck on on a sad note about the decline in the number of reporters that are covering uh, City Hall and and covering uh, local events. I, I think we need some forms of traditional journalism. We need reporters and we need editors. Uh, many people who put themselves out there as reporters or commentators often have pretty big egos and, and a very healthy confidence in their own opinions. And without someone going, hey, wait a minute, have you checked your facts on that? Or have you interviewed that other person who has a different point of view? If we don't have that spirit in our media, then I think we've really lost something. 
I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, I, it, when I publish in outlets that operate really quickly and don't do a lot of editing, it kind of makes me nervous. I want somebody to say, hey, wait a minute. Did you really think through the counter argument to this point you're making or did you talk to enough people? I know that uh, you get nervous when you're writing for a publication that doesn't check you. Um, I did one better than you, Jim. I married my editor. (laughs) A wise man. (laughs) (laughs) It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Uh, This show is a production of Davies Content. We make uh, podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Our website is Davies Content. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.